Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11 for our Old Testament reading. This is God's Word. He has preserved this for our instruction and benefit. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord... Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? 
Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Thus far our Old Testament lesson. Please turn to Matthew chapter 1. For our New Testament lesson, Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. 
and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we do bow our hearts before you, acknowledging that you have given us the words of life and we need your understanding to take hold of life. Open our eyes that we might see Christ more clearly today and that our hearts would yield to Him in love and gratitude. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. One of my mother's paternal ancestors, a man by the name of Freer, was the first man to sail a steamship across the Atlantic Ocean. Though I know nothing, virtually nothing, of any of my ancestors before my grandparents on either side, this one nugget of information from the past has been a source of pride and encouragement. If one of my ancestors could achieve something so daring and dangerous as Mr. Freer, maybe I could too. Maybe I could do something significant like he did. Maybe there's someone in your family tree like that who makes you proud. And makes you wonder, could I be like that person? What a privilege to be a descendant of that man or woman. When you learn of someone like that, your genealogy becomes more than just a list of boring names. It tells a story of hope for the future because of the way that God has worked through people in the past. People in your family line. Now, this is certainly true of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. His selective choice and arrangement of the names is intended to emphasize that Jesus is God's Savior. Jesus is the Savior. The initial summary statement that Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, identifies Jesus with two of the key covenant figures in the Old Testament with whom God made His covenant promises. David is further highlighted as he alone, in verse 6, is to be declared David the King. Many scholars believe that he is further highlighted because of the arrangement of names into groups of fourteen. And David's name in Hebrew, when the letters are added, comes to 14. And so they believe that David is being further emphasized. He's been declared the king. He's one of the two summarized. The numbers point to David. 
It was to David in 2 Samuel 7 that God had promised a son who would reign on his throne forever in peace and righteousness as the Savior of God's people. Matthew is not merely listing David here as a historical fact, but because David's place in Jesus' genealogy tells us something important about Jesus, indicating that He is the one who would fulfill the promise to David. Now this is especially true of the five women who are listed in the genealogy because women are rarely, if ever, listed in genealogies and therefore their inclusion is meant to tell us something about Jesus as well. Women were not highly valued in that culture. They were considered unimportant. And yet, Matthew includes the names of five women. And we've been looking at these women over the past few weeks, asking why would these women have been included and not others? What have they to teach us about Jesus? Tamar was sexually used and abused by her husband, her brother-in-law, and her father-in-law. That Jesus would be identified with her speaks of good news from God for those that have been sexually abused. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, was both immoral and an alien. Her name being listed offers hope to such people as well. Moabites were accursed by God in Deuteronomy 23 for their ill treatment of God's people as they traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land that Ruth the Moabite would be in the name of the line of Jesus. Royal family offers hope to those who feel accursed by God. Today we come to the fourth woman in verse 6. The wife of Uriah. Two things especially distinguish her from the other women that have already been mentioned. First, she is directly connected to David, one of the two covenantal figures that summarize the genealogy of Jesus. None of the other women are directly connected either to Abraham or David. But secondly, her name isn't given. She is called the wife of Uriah. Even though we know that her name is Bathsheba from the text that we read today in 2 Samuel 11, why would she be referenced seemingly unnecessarily in such an oblique manner when her name was commonly known? I believe the answer is Because contrary to the other women mentioned, we are not meant to focus on Bathsheba, but rather to reflect upon her relationship to David the king. Her name isn't mentioned because she is not meant to draw attention to herself. but to reflect back on David that he committed adultery against the wife of Uriah. 
Matthew could have ignored her completely. He could just not have mentioned her. Luke doesn't mention any of these women's names other than Mary in his gospel, in his genealogy of Jesus. But Matthew doesn't do that. He includes her name. He could have said David, the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. And in our minds, we would immediately begin to think about Bathsheba and who she was and, and what she did. But it doesn't say that he fathered Solomon by Bathsheba. It says that David fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't want us thinking about Bathsheba. He wants us to think about David, who he was and what it is that he had done. What matters is not what Bathsheba did. But what David did, he fathered a son with another man's wife. Think for me, think with me for a moment about who David was. He was a shepherd, a common peasant who loved the Lord, who was a psalm singer that composed a major portion of of the book of Psalms of praise that we have inspired by God in order to sing His praises. Psalms that we continue to use even to this day to praise His name. He was the hero of Israel who by faith defeated the giant Goliath and broke the back of the Philistines as a threat to Israel. He defeated the Jebusites and conquered Jerusalem and brought the ark of the Lord there to rest as the central gathering place of God's people. He received God's covenant promise of a son who would reign on the throne forever. A promise that quickly became the central hope of the entire nation of Israel. Psalms 18, 78, and 89 all celebrate this covenant as Israel's hope. While Psalm 132 and Psalm 144 appeal for God's help on the basis of the promise that He made to David in the covenant in 2 Samuel 7. It was David's throne for which the child of Isaiah 9 would be born. The one called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It was on David's throne that he would rule forever with justice and righteousness forevermore for the blessing of God's people. It was of David's throne for which the prophet Jeremiah promised a righteous branch who would spring up to rule and save the people of God from all of their enemies. It is David and his house that the prophet Zechariah looks when he speaks in chapter 12 of the coming salvation of the people of God. It is this David whom Matthew in the opening sentence of his Gospel declares Jesus to be his Son and whom alone Matthew highlights as David the King. It is this David, the hero and the hope 
of Israel who was given every advantage and every blessing from God who fathered a son by Uriah's wife. It was Uriah David betrayed. Not just any soldier of his army, but one of David's elite band of mighty men listed in 2 Samuel 23, who was so committed to David and his cause that when David summoned him away from the battle, he would not be distracted by going to his wife because his fellow soldiers could not be so distracted. He wanted to get back to help them. He was so devoted to David and his cause. It was this man. This man whom David betrayed by summoning his wife and getting her pregnant. He did it when she was ceremonially unclean, disregarding the law of God. He did it when kings normally go out to war, but he stayed back, not fulfilling the purpose that God had for him. It is hard to conceive of a more massive failure of a believer. One so privileged by God and yet he failed God horribly, publicly. But even as he traces the royal line of Jesus to verify the legitimacy of His claim as Savior and Messiah, Matthew wants you to see that Israel's heroic figure was to God a hapless failure so that you and I might see in the coming of Jesus good news for failed believers. Good news for people who horribly fail their God. David, who believed God so mightily, failed God so miserably. Now, why would Matthew do this? Why would he highlight David's failure? By immediately flagging as sinful one who he was at the same time upholding the example of, of a covenant partner of God who was the king to whom God made a promise that the future rested upon this man and his line as the epitome and object of Israel's hope, the hope of God's people. Well, there are at least, I believe, two reasons. The first is that right from the start, Matthew is impressing upon the reader. He's impressing upon you and me as we read this genealogy that no mere man, no simple son of David could ever bring salvation and realize the hope of God's promise for the people of Israel. If David the great hero failed, the long list of sons that follow were a testimony to the regular decline. Hezekiah, one bright spot, yet he 
turned to the Babylonians for help. Josiah, again, so faithful to restore the temple. Yet he himself did not take away all the high places. Jehoshaphat, on his own strength, went to fight with the sinful king of northern Israel. The salvation of the people of God, the salvation of you and me who believe, require one who was not just a man in the line of a great king, but one who was conceived by the Spirit who was, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. That, I believe, is one reason that Matthew highlights David's failure because no mere man could carry the weight, could accomplish the salvation that our future required. It took God's own Son to do that. But I also believe that David's failure is so highlighted because Jesus is shown as he is shown to be the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David, he shows that there is hope for failed believers like David. David was not rejected. The covenant was not rejected by God because of David's failure. David, in fact, was convicted by his sin, not right away, but when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet with this story that just infuriated David. David had so hardened his heart for months, he was blind to the reality of his own sin. And that can happen to you and me. We can get caught up in the sin that we deceive ourselves. We think everything is fine. Maybe deep down we know it's not, but we're able to hold it at a distance. As David did until God sent the prophet and the prophet speaking from God, it just got through his defenses and he condemned himself. And yet he truly repented. Because God removed the very threat of death that David said this man deserved and spared his life and used him. There is hope for failed believers. People who know God, who have professed a love for God, and yet who have turned away from God. There is hope. It may be that some of you this morning are struggling with a secret sin. It may be that you feel like a failure to God. That you have not been faithful to your vows, to your profession. That you've been living a lie. Dear friend, if David would be highlighted in the line of Jesus' genealogy, there is hope for you. There is hope for you if you will do as David did and confess your sin to the Lord, acknowledge His righteousness and your wrongness. 
and commit your life to Him. There were consequences for David. His whole family would be destroyed by violence and murder and rape and immorality and rebellion. But David was forgiven and he was received and restored. Dear friend, the same God who restored David sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. He died for David's sins. If you will but trust Him and believe that Jesus came to this world because of your sin, there is hope for you. Even if you believe that you have failed miserably, maybe it's not you that's failed miserably, but someone you know that has failed God. This is a message to us that we ought not to give up on people who have failed. There is still hope if they will but turn to the Lord and repent. And so, by your love and your prayer for such a one, there is yet hope that they might turn away from their failure, that they would acknowledge it openly before God and turn back to Him. You need not despair. You need not despair because Jesus has come and there is hope for failed believers. Maybe some of you Maybe someone is here. You've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus. You've not had time to fail in your faith because you've never put your faith in Him. But now you know. Now you know that He is a God who takes the faith of His people seriously. Now you've heard that there is one who has died for sinners. You need to put your trust in Him. Because God will hold you accountable for not trusting in Him. And you will be a failed unbeliever. But you could have been a believer if you only put your trust in Him and you have heard. And you have no excuse. I urge you, the coming of Jesus is a joyful time because there is hope for people like you and like me. Because there was hope for one like David who did so much and yet failed so miserably. Even when Jesus walked on the earth, you will remember that the great leader of His disciple band, Peter, denied Jesus. Not without consequence, but He was restored when He repented and grieved over what He had done. The coming of Jesus is good news. That's why we celebrate Christmas. There is hope, even for those that should have known better, even those that have failed horribly. There is hope in the coming of Jesus. And that is why we celebrate His coming. And He is coming again. And so I urge you, look, Not just to the Jesus who was, but the Jesus who is yet to come. Who will come to bring about final justice and righteousness throughout the world for all people. May you know His favor. 
May you have hope because you have put your trust in Him. Because you have acknowledged your failure before Him. Because you believe that His love is greater than your sins. May this be your testimony on the day when He returns. Let's pray.